My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the Lord be in my heart and on my lips, that I may worthily and fitly proclaim the Holy Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week we looked at the reading from Hebrews and from Job, dealing with the theme of suffering. We talked about how prosperity-ish theology is sort of the de facto, uh, the starting point for much of American Christianity, and leaving people unable to grapple with the deeper questions brought out by our own and one another's suffering. We also continued the suffering, uh, continued, we considered the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he does not bypass them but walks straight to the cross. How his endurance of suffering culminates in his death, resulting in his glorification, his perfection, and ultimately in our own glorification and perfection in the age to come. And so today, given the readings, we're going to continue this theme of suffering by looking at the reading from Job and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, as we heard read a few moments ago from the epistle to the Hebrews. There's a long-running in-joke that I have with many of my friends, and that is that all of my friends, at one point or another in their lives, they are going to get one unasked-for piece of advice. One unasked for piece of advice. And I only do this once. Only once. And there have been a few times where I actually have done just that. And generally it sort of takes the form of you're about to make a really important, potentially life-altering decision that's going to have ramifications and affect a whole bunch of things and people other than yourself. So you might want to think hard about what you're about to do And you might want to reconsider what you're about to do and consider alternatives. And because of who I am and because of what I do, right, that my friends sort of put up with that. And and whenever I have done that in the past, it's been generally well received even if they didn't listen. Because they knew that the concern was coming from a real place, a heart to see them be well, even if our competing visions of what that looked like for them was different. And I think that this is sort of like what happens with Job and his friends. I remember in seminary, we were talking a little bit about Job, and the Old Testament professor said, how many of you think that Job had good friends? And one guy raised his hand, he's like, no, Job had terrible friends. (laughs) And then the professor said, we just read where it said they sat with him in silence for seven days. They didn't say anything. They just sat with him in his suffering, in his pain for seven days. And you're saying that they were bad friends? Yeah. No, they were were good friends, right? Seven days in silence. At a funeral, some of us can't even last seven seconds with the discomfort before we say everything happens for a reason and we, we run away not knowing what to say. Seven days. In our reading from chapter 23, we heard Job's response. 
And he's responding to one of his friends named Eliphaz. And in chapter 22, to set some context for what Job says in 23, Eliphaz accuses Job of some serious shortcomings. He says essentially three things. Number one, God is judging you because your evil is abundant. That's why you're suffering. And then he gives examples. He's like, you must have withheld bread and water from the hungry or the thirsty. You must have defrauded the poor. You must not have helped the widows and the needy. And then number two, he says, if you keep walking in the way of the wicked, you're going to be snatched away before your time, just like they are. And then the third thing he essentially says is return to God. In other words, own up to your wickedness and God will reverse all of this. Excuse me. Now, generally speaking, right, calling people to repentance for their sins is a good thing. We do it every Sunday. We acknowledge our sins and we bring them before the Lord, asking him to forgive our sins and then hearing that word of forgiveness pronounced over you as your sins are truly and really forgiven. But it's good to call people to repentance for their sins because doing that is valid because sin leads to destruction. Sin leads to death. But Eliphaz's problem is he thinks he knows Job better than he does and he thinks he knows the ways and minds of God, which he doesn't. Because all of the things he accuses Job of saying you are suffering for these reasons are all things that Job is actually innocent of. Job did not withhold bread and water from the hungry or the thirsty. He did not defraud the poor. He helped the widows and the needy. He did all of those things. He did not walk in the way of the wicked. He walked in the way of the righteous. And he doesn't need to return to God because he never left God in the first place. And throughout this book, his friends try and give him reasons for his suffering. And Job knows that all of the reasons that they're giving him are wrong. But he doesn't get it right himself either. He doesn't get it right himself either. And oftentimes when we suffer ourselves, well-meaning people will come to us and say, God is judging you because you must have done something bad. Has anybody ever told you that when you were going through it? You must have done something to deserve this. Karma. If you keep doing that, something bad's going to happen to you. And you better own up and return to God. But for many of us, we haven't walked that way. We haven't done anything that we think deserving of suffering. And sometimes our suffering has absolutely nothing to do necessarily with God. But the fact that we live in a world that has been corrupted by sin and enslaved to death. And Job expresses his frustration and his anger. But one thing he does not do throughout the book is curse God and die, as his wife tells him to do, as we heard read last week. Curse God and die. In fact, in Job 1 verse 22, it says... In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And in Job 2.10, part B, it says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And at the very beginning of the book, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
Job responds to Eliphaz saying, how am I supposed to find God? Because in the previous chapter, Eliphaz says, we know that God is high in the heavens. You know, return to him. And Job says in what we heard read this morning, how am I supposed to do that? If I knew where his throne was, then I could just show up there and I could present my case before him. And then after that, I could hear his response to me. I could hear from him directly and be acquitted of whatever it is that brought this suffering upon me. He can see that I didn't deserve this. And we know, though, as the readers, that God did not bring this upon him. Satan did. And sometimes we need to be careful of ascribing to God things that the devil is responsible for. Because as St. Peter reminds us, right, he prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Job says, I've looked for him, I can't find him. I've looked, he's, I think he says, the north, south, the east, the front, the back, all around, a 360. I've kept his commandments, I've treasured his words, but I'm terrified of him, but I can't be silent before him. But we know, of course, no one can approach the throne of God. Its location is impossible to find on a map because his throne is in the heavens. The psalmist reminds us that the earth is his footstool. And God himself reminds us that I do not dwell in buildings made with hands. But this desire to find God, to present a case before him, to be told that we are in the right, to be told maybe God was wrong in allowing our suffering, that desire is a strong one. And one that highlights just how unable we are to not only know God's mind and ways, but the state of our own souls. We want our own rightness, our own righteousness validated by God, but God doesn't do that. And like Job, we can't find God by looking all around or by using a GPS. So if we cannot find God to present our case, which we would lose anyway, then what are we supposed to do? Who can we rely upon to present our case before the throne? The author of Hebrews begins this, his selection today by saying the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And this should lead us to ask brothers and sisters, what is the word of God? And this is a very good question and there are a few different ways we can look at what the word of God is. Firstly, we know the word of God is a reference to sacred scripture. St. Augustine, St. Basil the Great, St. Simeon the New Theologian, all of the fathers, many of the fathers of the church, they all say God speaks to us through divine scripture. God speaks to us through scripture. And I say this because of what I'm about to talk about in a moment. But I remember growing up in movements where people would say, I really wish God would speak to me. Has anybody ever done that? I really wish God would talk to me. I really wish he would say something to me. I'm really going through something and I need comfort, I need strength. Why doesn't God just talk to me? I need direction, right? And brothers and sisters, 
God has spoken to you and to me through his, through his word. God has spoken. Now listen, the Bible, it's not going to be, <laughs> I'll use a silly example here, right? When Archie has to choose between Betty or Veronica, right? It's not like he can go to the Bible and look it up and say, God, I need to help you. Help me decide, should I choose Betty or Veronica? Maybe there's something about it in the book of First Kings, right? That's not what I'm talking about. God has spoken to us in Scripture. When we read Scripture, we encounter the voice of God and we are shaped by it. So when we have to make decisions like choosing between Betty or Veronica or when we have to choose in decisions between should I take this job here or should I take this job here or if we decide between should I marry this person or should I continue to live a life of loneliness. That was my, my big one, right? One of mine. The word of God helps orient our hearts to him so we can choose what is good. And God speaks to us through his word. Our denomination likes to say God is still speaking. And that is absolutely true. God is still speaking to us through his word. But we also have to remember that what God speaks to us now will not go against what he has spoken to us in times past. And scripture has the power to cut through to the very depths of our soul and to bear it before God. Secondly, there's a link to a divine person referenced throughout the Old Testament and that person is the word of the Lord. We see this in the Old Testament where it says something like, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, dot, dot, dot. So how many of us, when we've, have ever read that in the, in the Old Testament? The word of the Lord came to so-and-so saying. Have you read that and thought that person was hearing a disembodied voice? I'll raise my hand. I thought that. I guess I was the only one. Okay. You guys are all... Let's, I'm gonna, you come, come up here and preach and I'll come and sit down. No, I'm just kidding. It's not a disembodied voice speaking to the person when scripture says the word of the Lord came to somebody saying this. The word of the Lord was understood to be a person. And there's references to the word of the Lord appearing to people and speaking to them. In 1 Samuel 3, it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Vision. So there's a link between hearing the word of the Lord and seeing something. And then when we continue in the Samuel story, what does it say happens? In 1 Samuel 3.10, it said, And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then it says in 3.21, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. Right, so the Old Testament authors, they understood this word of the Lord was understood to be God himself, Yahweh himself, appearing to people to speak with them in human form. 
So the author of the book of Hebrews references this word of the Lord, this, this word of God. He says what the word accomplishes, and then he, he immediately then applies that to Jesus. He writes that Jesus is our great high priest. And what does a high priest do? He offers sacrifices to God. He stands as one who mediates between God and God's people. And Jesus is the high priest extraordinaire. Now look at what the word of God personified as Jesus Christ does. He makes it able for us to draw near to the throne of grace. So we could obtain grace and help in time of need. And we have this confidence because Jesus is able to sympathize with us. Because remember, in the incarnation, he took upon himself human nature and suffered death for us. And the author of Hebrews says, when he came into conflict with the things that tempt us, he never fell into sin. So it says, remember, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We heard that read in Hebrews 4.14. Did you catch that? Remember what I just said about what Eliphaz said to Job. He said, God is high in the heavens. And Job responded with, I wish I knew how to find God and present my case before him. What does Jesus do after he is resurrected? And hangs out with the disciples for a while. He ascends to where? To heaven. The place where the Father dwells. The place that Job cannot find. The God-man, Jesus Christ, goes before the throne of the Father to mediate for us. And we just confess that, right? In the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The place that Job is seeking, the place he wants to look for but knows he can never find, the Word of God, our Savior Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus knows the way. And when he gets there, he takes his role in the heavens doing what he did for us on earth, being our faithful high priest before the Father. And the case that he brings before the Father is all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our mortality, and God forgives us, he cleanses us, he makes us truly just, truly righteous, truly beloved in his sight. He regenerates us through the giving of the Holy Spirit. He washes us clean and he clothes us in garments of white, that confidence that Job lacked, how can I find God, has been reversed through Jesus. We have been given as a gift access to the throne of grace because of our incorporation into Jesus Christ as his body, the church. So we can boldly approach the throne of God because Jesus showed us the way through his own blood, his own suffering, and his own death which then raises us up into heaven too. And this then, brothers and sisters, should give us some perspective on our own suffering. That the unanswered questions we may have, the doubts we may have, the fear, the fear we may have will all one day melt and pass away in the light of the glory and in the grace of God.
And it's important to note, I think, brothers and sisters, that in the book of Job, at the end, after all of this, Job asking, why is this happening? I didn't deserve this. God shows up in the whirlwind and challenges Job. Were you there when I hung Pallades, this group of stars? Were you there when I set the foundations of the earth? Of course, the answer is no. And what Job gets is a vision of God that is so transcendent that the question of his own suffering becomes irrelevant in the face of the glory of God. And so many people nowadays reading the book of Job say, well, that's great for Job, but God hasn't appeared to me in the whirlwind. I haven't had a vision of God that doesn't answer the questions about suffering but that makes me understand that the question itself might not be one that can be answered and I have to learn to maybe be okay with that. I didn't get that when I suffered. And I trusted and I didn't get what I wanted. And I boldly approached the throne of grace and I didn't find that help in time of need. I didn't, like Job, see God. And that's a very tough question, brothers and sisters. And I would say to those people who have gone through that, and I don't say this flippantly, and I don't say this to be a smart aleck. But that vision we, we get of the transcendent God is one that we get when we're here. When we're gathered in worship around the risen Christ. When we glorify his name, when we sing praises to him, when we give to him when we confess our sins, when we hear the word of God which is able to discern the thoughts of intents of our hearts, when we heard that read and then heard it preached and proclaimed, and then ultimately we get the vision of God through all of those things culminating when I stand before you, lifting up the chalice and the bread. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the vision. That's the vision of the transcendent God that we get. We won't see God in the whirlwind, but we'll see God at the altar. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory. Together with his Father, who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to GoFundMe.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower, as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.